Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we dive into this episode, I need to inform you of the unprecedented financial strain we are currently experiencing at the museum due to the COVID-19 pandemic. For six months during 2020, we closed our doors to help slow and stall the spread of COVID-19. Although we reopened in September, the decline in visitors and tourism has made a grave impact on our survival. This podcast, our extensive museum collection, our preservation initiatives, and our outreach programs are only made possible with help from people like you, people who care deeply about the fire department in New York City and cherish its extraordinary history, unique heritage, and life-saving mission. Please consider donating to the New York City Fire Museum this holiday season. Visit nycfiremuseum.org donate to learn how you can support us. We are currently in uncharted territory, Cultural institutions like ours are facing an uphill battle as COVID-19 continues to have wide-reaching and devastating impacts. But we remain optimistic for our future because we know that as a community, we are not just fire buffs. We are students of history, always looking to learn from our past so we could build a better and brighter future. Thank you for supporting the New York City Fire Museum during this challenging time. And now, let's get this show started. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the devastating Brooklyn Theater Fire of 1876. The tenure of Chief of Department John Kenwin begins in 1911, and the 1957 formation of the Radiological Unit. Every so often, a fire occurs that sends shockwaves throughout the country and sometimes the world. One such fire happened in a location that at the time was outside of New York City. On December 5, 1876, in the neighboring and still independent city of Brooklyn, the play Two Cousins was showing at the Brooklyn Theater. The theater was located at what is now Cadman Plaza near the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. There were approximately 900 people in the audience, about two-thirds of the 1,550 people the theater could hold. It is important to remember that this was at a time before the use of electric lighting. Lighting was provided by gas jets with modulated flames that were somewhat protected by steel cages, but nevertheless, they were still open flames. At about 11.15 p.m., the play was in its final act when one of those gas lights started a fire in a piece of scenery. It was discovered by some theater workers when flaming debris fell to the stage. People started shouting, fire, fire. The star of the show, famed actress Kate Claxton, tried to keep the audience calm, and the band played on. Believe it or not, supposedly the audience did indeed remain in their seats for about eight minutes after the fire started. But by then, the fire had spread, and the flames were extending beyond the area above the stage and into the audience. When stagehands opened an exterior door to leave the building, the rush of fresh air made the fire grow exponentially. Now, the audience began to panic and rush to escape. The Brooklyn Theater was built in 1871. It had three seating levels, with the main level seating 600, the first balcony seating 550, and the top balcony holding 450. On this night of the performance, the lower balcony had about 300 of its 550 capacity, while the upper balcony was full, and the main floor had the lowest number of spectators at around 250. When the panic started and people rushed for the exits, those on the main ground level got out with relative ease. 
However, the largest number of people, over 400, had to descend down two levels, one of which, the first balcony, had an additional 300 trying to reach the ground floor. As you could begin to imagine, the scene was chaotic and fierce. Not only were people frantic to save themselves and their families, some began to jump from the upper tiers. It was a deadly stampede. Coincidentally, the adjoining building on the south side of the theater was the first precinct station house of the Brooklyn Police Department. The police sent the signal to the Fire Department Telegraph Office in Brooklyn City Hall, and the alarm was translated to fire units at 11.20 p.m. The Brooklyn Fire Department was a paid force in 1876, just like their brothers across the river in New York City. The closest company to the theater, the first Dew Engine Company, was Engine 5, under the command of Foreman Thomas Burns. Upon their arrival at the fire, which now virtually engulfed the building, they brought their hose line in through the front door to mount an attack. The first chief of the scene, District Engineer Charles Farley, ordered all members, as well as police officers, to save the lives of those still trying to escape from the theater. The magnitude of the fire drew the response of the chief engineer, Thomas Nevins. Under his command, three alarms were transmitted, bringing numerous engine and ladder companies. About 30 minutes after the fire began, the walls of the building started to collapse. Earlier, the balconies had already collapsed, extinguishing with them and under them many lives. In all, many souls never escaped. The fire was finally declared under control at 1 o'clock in the morning. In all, 278 people perished many of whom were burned beyond recognition. They were interred in a mass grave at Greenwood Cemetery, where a tall obelisk stands in their honor. At a time before motion pictures, radio, and television, live theaters were the primary entertainment of the day. Building construction, gas lighting, flammable sets and curtains made them highly vulnerable to disastrous and fatal fires. Brooklyn Theater was not the only such venue to be visited by such a tragedy. Urban legend has it that as a result of the Brooklyn Theater fire, it was made illegal to shout fire in a crowded theater. While that is not true, it is safe to say that the phrase has become a metaphor for creating panic, the likes of which visited the Brooklyn Theater in December of 1876. Hello everyone, I'm Ted Grant, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we all know, the world has drastically changed since March 2020. There remains a very difficult time for everyone. At the New York City Fire Museum, our principal sources of revenue have all but disappeared this year. While we normally host nearly 10,000 school children in our fire safety education program, school closures have caused that to cease. We are also visited by about 30,000 other visitors each year many outside the metropolitan area, including firefighters from around the world. But tourism has all but stopped. And we host many events annually for community and other organizations that too has stopped. As a result, the museum is now under severe financial strain in our ability to keep the museum open, which is run by a nonprofit organization established in 1981. Our nonprofit institution is not funded by the FDNY or the city of New York. If you believe in our mission to preserve history, educate children on fire safety, and celebrate the heroism of first responders and the contribution of the fire department, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to our new crisis recovery fund at nycfiremuseum.org donate. 
It's hard to believe, but the Alliance of American Museums estimates as many as one-third of the nation's museum will be forced to close due to the unprecedented toll of the pandemic on cultural institutions that depend on visitors, members, and donors to survive. Please don't let the New York City Fire Museum be one of the ones to close. As we approach the holiday season and the end of the tax year, please remember the New York City Fire Museum in your charitable donations. All donations are tax exempt. Again, you can support us by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash donate. Thank you for your generosity, continued support, and for partnering with us to preserve, educate, and celebrate the history and tradition of the FDNY. John Kenlon was born in County Louth, Ireland, near the seaport village of Anagansen. One day, while working the field of a local estate, he abandoned his mule and plow, headed for the boat races, and never turned back. At the age of 13, he signed on as a hand on the topsail schooner Margaret and Peggy and spent the next 14 years at sea. He chronicled his experiences in his autobiography, 14 Years a Sailor. During a visit to New York City, he attended a Broadway show. Towards the end of the third act, someone in the crowd yelled fire, and pandemonium ensued as they all clamored toward the main entrance. Kenlin realized that nobody was using the numerous side exits from the theater, so he went that route. But before escaping, he witnessed the arrival of the firefighters who quickly extinguished the growing blaze on the raised curtain. In his account of the incident, he said that the combination of realizing the safety and ease with which the theater could have been evacuated and his intent interest of watching the firefighters work made up his mind to leave his life at sea and become a New York City firefighter, which he did on April 2nd, 1887. His original assignment was Engine 24. Years later, he formed and became the first battalion chief in charge of the Marine Division. An examination for promotion to the rank of Deputy Chief of the Marine Division was ordered with the requisite that applicants had to hold pilots and master's licenses. Chief Kenlin was the only chief of battalion who could qualify, and after passing the examination, he was promoted to the specific title by Special Order Number 45, being the only officer to hold the rank of Deputy Chief of the Marine Division. Two years later, although the junior among Deputy Chiefs, he was first on the list for Chief of Department and became the head of the uniform force on August 1st, 1911. Under his command, the FDNY fought one of the most difficult structure fires of the time, the Equitable Building Fire in 1912. In 1913, Chief Kenlin penned an authoritative book on firefighting entitled Fires and Firefighting. Upon his retirement from the FDNY in 1931, Chief Kenlin moved to Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, where he spent the rest of his days. The museum has an extensive collection of artifacts from Chief Kenlin, including photographs, certificates, his helmet and uniform, and his official portrait. I'll include some images of these in this month's newsletter. We have also just established a new exhibition on the history of the FDNY Marine Division. I invite you all to come and see it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we need your help. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, our main sources of income have declined significantly. In-person visits, school trips, event space rentals, and shop sales have all been impacted. 
we are now forced to rely more heavily on the generosity of our supporters. Please donate to the New York City Fire Museum to help us fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Visit nycfiremuseum.org slash donate to learn how you can support us. And now back to the episode. Those of a certain generation will distinctly remember the Cold War. It was a period of time after the Second World War when the fear of nuclear armament had the world thinking about the dangers of radioactivity and its weaponization. The concerns of the FDNY at the time are reflected in the department's training magazine, WNYF, in such articles as Atomic Bomb Effects in July 1950 and Reporting Radiation Exposure in October 1957. Members of the department received new training on incidents involving radioactivity. This training was put to the test when the crew of Engine Company 6 were performing field inspection duty and they came upon two suspicious lead cabinets at a laboratory in Lower Manhattan. The officer called for the department's new radiological unit, which responded from its quarters in Long Island City, and used a Geiger counter to evaluate the hazards. I've always said that the history of any city, or even the country in many cases, can be seen through the history of the fire service. The FDNY's radiological unit is one such example that was in response to the anxiety and reality of the Cold War. According to the department order establishing the unit, its primary mission was to protect members of the department engaged in incidents involving radioactive material. It would do so by keeping abreast of all research, techniques, and regulations regarding radioactive material, educating the department on those topics, issuing and maintaining all relevant equipment owned by the department, inspecting premises and vehicles engaged in the handling of radioactive materials, and ultimately responding throughout the five boroughs to incidents involving radioactive materials. The unit operated one vehicle, a converted 1942 Ford van, the type we used to call a bread truck, that previously served the department as a field kitchen. It carried a wide array of equipment, such as detection kits and meters, lead-lined gloves and aprons to protect the crew, lead bricks that could be used to shield dangerous material, and a small library of technical books for reference in the field. The unit did not operate very long. It was discontinued in October of the following year with its responsibilities and equipment transferred to the department's five rescue units. The helmet front piece for members assigned to this unique and short-lived unit bore the standardized propeller symbol indicating radioactivity. Although we have hundreds of helmet front pieces in our collection, we don't have one of those. If anybody is aware of one that we might be able to preserve along with the history of the radiological unit, please contact us at curator at nycfiremuseum.org. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. In 1940, WNYF made its debut as a modest eight-page newsletter. Since then, it has grown into a premier training publication and is now one of three magazines to be published by FDNY Pro. So what are the two sister publications of WNYF? give you a hint. They are both relatively new and released their premier issues in 2016 and 17 respectively. The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's installment of our companion Throwback FDNY newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter at nycfiremuseum.org 
slash throwbackfdny. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy these podcasts as much as we enjoy producing them for you. On behalf of our producers, Patty Murphy and Joe Malvasio and myself, we wish you the happiest of New Year's, and we look forward to delivering more stories that bring the extraordinary history and unique heritage of the FDNY to life in 2021. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the FDNY. Thank you to Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro and Chief of Department John Sudnick for their unwavering support. Also to the FDNY Foundation Board of Directors. Thank you to the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees, our staff, our volunteers, and of course, our museum members. I'm Gary Urbanos. I'll leave you with this important message one final time in 2020. We can all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. It starts in each of our homes by ensuring we all have a working smoke and carbon monoxide alarm. Thank you and be safe.